Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk, and today I'm joined by the most prolific member of Raptors Republic as far as appearances on this podcast with myself as the host. We've got Adam McQueen, and before I actually invite him to speak back, I'm going to read something he wrote after Game 2, and that will be the lead into what we start talking about immediately. End quote. I myself can be an impulsive guy at times. Watching the Raptors getting blown out on Friday night set me on the precipice of unloading knee-jerk reactions galore. Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, courtesy of some melancholic post-game playlists and plenty of introspection. As infuriating as Toronto's performance was, the Milwaukee Bucks were flawless defensively. End quote. Adam, first of all, welcome to the show. Secondly, if you're an emotional guy, you're impulsive, what was your immediate reaction to Lowry fouling out with roughly eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. The, the series is over, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready. I was ready to burn it down. Spoiler alert: like Daenerys Targaryen. It, I was. I saw the writing on the wall, man. And I could lie here with hindsight bias and be like, no, I. I felt calm. And I mean, during during these games, I try and have a modicum of professionalism. I'll take active notes. But then after this game occurred and I looked back on my notes, I realized literally the moment that Lowry went out onwards, I had zero notes. I was just consumed by this game and I fully turned into a fan. And yeah, I'd be lying if I thought that anything positive was going to come once Lowry was out. And not only was it Lowry going out, but that we were bringing in our man Fred Van Vliet, who is... (laughs) He is just getting a weapon online, unfortunately. Yeah, that was the thing, right? Is uh, Louis Zatzman, great writer at Raptors Republic. I'm sure anybody who listens is familiar. I was talking to him during the game and before the game. We were discussing what we were each going to write about because we were doing the features that came out today, both of us. And we were saying, like, what are you going to write about, man? This game is absolutely nuts. And neither of us had any clue. And just like you said, that you had no notes coming after Kyle's um, Kyle leaving the game. I didn't have any either. It just, that was it. I was like, okay, if this is either going to be the story or the Raptors are going to conjure up some sort of grimy, slimy win. And they did. So I guess you brought up the fact that Fred Van Vliet has to come in. You don't have any notes. But thinking back to let's let's go to the presence of mind there. Your immediate reaction, besides the fact that the series is over, you see Fred VanVleet coming in. Are you thinking of positives he can bring, or what are the negatives you're thinking about? It, not necessarily just Fred VanVleet, but it felt eerily similar to Game One, 
you know, the Raptors started off really well, and then that lead slowly. Like, the Milwaukee were just slowly finding their feet and finding their way into the game. And that third quarter, even when Lowry was on, you could see, I think it was a 24-19 quarter, and you could see that the Bucks' defensive intensity was starting to ratchet up. And although Raptors were still doing really well defensively as well, on Giannis and Middleton and Bledsoe, who all shot poorly, which is being much covered, but you could feel the momentum shift like game one. And it was like, if Milwaukee are able to just snake this win again in a similar fashion to game one, then obviously 3-0, the series is pretty much over. But just like the mental deflation for us as viewers and the players on the court, like it would have just been so painful, man. And look, I thought it was always going to be a rock fight game three. I didn't think it was going to be the prettiest of games. And that's what it was. And that was the only kind of positive thought I had when Larry was off. That was the game has already kind of descended into this muck and this chaos. And hopefully we can just kind of lean on Kawhi. And at least there was some other players outside of Larry and Gasol, Powell and uh, Siakam as well that were at least performing offensively. So there was like the slightest of hope, but man, every time you see Fred with the ball in his hands, just dribbling the air out the clock, ah, it just, it just makes me like, I get shivers at this point, man. And I, I don't want to be dumping any more on Van Vliet, but there's, there was no way that I thought the Raptors would pull out a must-win game with Freddie on the floor to close out double overtime. Yeah, and I like I like the point where you're saying it's descending into chaos. And if there's anybody on the Raptors who is an agent of chaos, I think it's it's Kyle Lowry who, when the game is up in the air and he's got to get a loose ball, he's got to find some way to create something out of nothing. Exactly. He's the guy who creates that opportunity. Exactly. So I guess, yeah, acknowledging that he wasn't there for that. Prior to that, they put themselves largely in a position to win. What's what's the biggest thing that happened in that game? And if you can not talk about Marcus all for this point, because <laughs> we'll get into that later. Um, I've been warned by Samson. Don't he gave me twenty minutes of lead in time last podcast. So this time we'll delay it. We'll hold on because that's something to look forward to for all you listeners. Because I know you're all here just to listen to Gasol takes. Outside of the individual <laughs> performances of Gasol, um, obviously Norman Powell. We'll, we'll get to that all late, later, but from like a holistic standpoint, I think the biggest thing for the Raptors as a team was their defensive adjustments. And obviously when they put Siakam onto Bledsoe and he kind of roamed off of him, uh, putting Kawhi on Giannis, he was incredible. And just um, so, and then Lowry on Middleton and kind of baiting him into trying to take advantage of that perceived mismatch, which we all know taking Lowry in the post isn't actually um, a mismatch. So I think throwing those curveballs, it took Milwaukee some time to adjust. And to be honest, they never really fully adjusted to those defensive, um, the different assignments that Nick Nurse put on his starting lineup. And I think that was what I took that was the most positive because at the end of game two, it was hard to really see where the Raptors could uh, at least generate an advantage. And especially given the the workload that Kawhi's had on offense, it felt like it was just not tenable to put him on Giannis and also carry the burden of the offensive load, which, I mean, (laughs) the fact that Kawhi managed to do that and do what he did in the fourth quarter with one leg is beyond stupendous. But I think that it really took them out of the flow because Giannis seemed not scared, but he didn't want to go up against Kawhi. And Milwaukee were spending so much of the first 10 seconds of the shot clock just trying to shake Kawhi off of Giannis through defensive switches and off-ball screens and all of that. The, the, the Milwaukee weren't really playing the offense, which has made them one of the top, what, a fourth-ranked offense during the regular season. They really left their offensive identity because they were so rattled by those initial matchups. Yeah, and... I. I thought it was a stroke of genius by Nurse to put to have the Bled Sosiaka matchup. I really like that mm-hmm. decision. I I might have, and I did suggest it when I was on Sportsnet to talk. I suggested that Kawhi go on Giannis because when Giannis was starting to go downhill, 
when they were trying to, you know, Reggie Miller calls it building a wall at the rim, things like that. Giannis was making the proper reads. He was spraying the ball to the corner. Breakdowns were coming off of that action. So you needed to mitigate those losses. And Kawhi is, even though it requires a lot of cumbersome action for him to take on Giannis, that seems to be the answer. And especially difficult to have him do, like you alluded to, the offense and the defense. I wouldn't have thought of putting Siakam on Bledsoe, even though I've been cognizant of Siakam on John Wall. Siakam had a couple. He had he played the second half against Russell Westbrook in the, I think yeah. it was the March game they played. Mm-hmm. But I still thought it was really creative. And Lowry on Middleton is also a good adjustment too because you know Middleton likes to turn around mm-hmm. and he can't really resist it. Middleton isn't very creative running the pick and roll, so he's not going to shed Lowry that way. He's not going to be passing after going downhill, stirring up the Raptors' defense. So my question is, and we'll get into something after this, but those are great adjustments. Do the Bucks have the personnel to make the Raptors really pay, or is this the first adjustment in the series that can really, really change the complexion of it? I, I, I like what you, what you say there, because I actually wanted to post you, if you were Mike Boonholzer, what? What would you do anything different, or do you think that it was just a cold game for your players? But the whole the whole game itself and the the adjustments that the Raptors threw at Milwaukee was really reminiscent of what Philly did to the Raptors in Game Two of the last series when you put Embiid on Siakam, and that really rattled him. And I think the same happened to Bledsoe in this game. Um, do I think well, Mil- this is the thing: is that Milwaukee has so much depth. And granted, Bledsoe and Middleton had terrible games, but then you look in Brogdon and George Hill, each piled in points from the from the bench. So I think there's something that's always been lingering, and I know you've mentioned it. We've probably talked about it, and it's a lot of the Raptors beat writers are fearful of it. Is what happens when you take out Miritich and put Brogdon in the lineup? Is that is that one talented offensive player too many for the Raptors to defend? And I, I'd like to think that the Raptors can continue this kind of defensive intensity because they've done it in games one and three. And although Milwaukee have missed some open looks, I think that too often we're, we're saying that these their, their three-point percentage is going to regress back to the mean in a positive way. But... Looking at the way that the Raptors are helping and recovering and closing out on these shooters, there's a reason that they're missing these shots. So at the end of the day, I think for Toronto to really be able to, because their adjustments were incredible and the way they played defense was incredible, but they're going to have to play not only that style, but at that level of intensity and that speed of closeout and that speed of double teams. And that's going to be hard to do for another what, they have to win another three games, and two, at least two of those are going to have to be on the road. One of them is going to have to be on the road. So that's really what it comes down to for me is if they're able to execute this game plan because it's a really aggressive defensive scheme they're doing now. I mean, Ibaka and Gasol were incredible in terms of the speed of their double team when Giannis was in the post, their decision-making in that. The weak side help defender in Danny Green, who's having to look at if Giannis is going to fire that long cross-court pass or if he's going to look for that little dump in because so much attention is his way. Like, those guys, that's a lot of mental and physical energy, and these guys are playing 40-plus minutes at this point. So that's why I'm concerned about it. But if they play the way they did in Game 3, I think it's hard for Milwaukee to really fire the way they did against Boston and Detroit. Yeah, I totally agree. The point you were making about the Raptors – causing them to miss a lot of threes it's worth saying that there's nobody on the bucks who has an 0 for 14 streak like Kawhi leonard did during the philadelphia 76ers series and i don't know if this is homerism i think i'm usually good at avoiding that but the raptors in the 76ers series where we were all lamenting their inability to hit open shots were genuinely missing wide open shots not Mm -hmm. the perceived to be open shots not the you know, pseudo good looks, but genuinely not a guy within eight to 10 feet missing jumpers. Mm-hmm. Like you alluded to, the Raptors, their closeouts have been of the highest quality I've seen in the NBA this year. 
some of them are reminiscent of the 2010 to 2014 Miami Heat, that crazy scram defense they used to play. Mm-hmm. And I, I do agree with you. I think it's tough to envision a Bucks regression to the mean when the Raptors' closeouts are of this high quality. And then stretching off of that, if you can't create shots that way and you're having a lot of difficulty trying to get away from really sticky on-ball defenders that the Raptors have. Like you were going to say, if I'm Mike Budenholzer, what do I do? The answer to me is Brogdon entering the starting lineup, as it, as it should be. When I was on the other podcast doing it with the Bucks guys, I said, you know, I think it's great for the Raptors that Miritich is starting because I think that Brogdon is a much, much better player. And then thinking of how difficult it would be for the Raptors, like you alluded to, is that one offensive player too many for the Raptors to stick with? It might be because Brogdon, he, he's flipped the series already. He's been the plus-minus god for the Bucks. He's, he's really swung the bench minutes. And if he enters the starting lineup, one of Kyle Lowry or Danny Green is going to have to contain him. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really, really tough ask so far. Yeah. And speaking of Danny Green, let's get into it. Oh. <laughs> One of the most decorated 3 and D players in the league. That's Danny Green. A man who shoots over 40% from downtown in his playoff career and has had his hat in the ring for a possible finals MVP selection. That Danny Green. His shooting has been atrocious. What's the take there? How do you correct that for Danny? What does he need to do? Oh, man. And the weird thing is, is when you mentioned Brogdon is stats aside, and I don't have the shooting numbers on me, but I bet if I asked you, if I asked any of the Raptors Republic writers, even any of just fans, who are you most scared of shooting a three for Milwaukee? It's Malcolm Brogdon. Every time the ball leaves his hands, I'm, I, I do this like exhale, like, oh, it's going in. Like, yeah. even if it doesn't, I'm like, oh, it should have gone in. Like every single shot I think is going in. And that's what Danny Green used to be. When, when they beat the Heat in 2014, he didn't miss. He didn't miss from outside. He was an absolute flamethrower. And I know that is, at this point, oh, makes me feel old, but that was, five, what, five years ago now. But he still showed remarkable production during the regular season. And sure, the, the defense has ratcheted up as it always does in the playoffs, but he's missing open looks. And at this point, it's like incomprehensible. My only theory, and I know whenever we get on a pod together, it ends up being uh, a bash LeBron session somehow, but LeBron holds grudges, right? 2014, Danny Green steals a championship from him. His revenge is a long con, is he's probably got Danny Green in to do Space Jam 2, and the Monstars have subsequently stolen all of his talent. And that was the reason LeBron James still haunts in Toronto Raptors. So you're suggesting that Danny Green is truly a method actor, like Christian Bale, something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, is Christian Bale a method? Daniel Day-Lewis. He's more of a Daniel Day-Lewis. Danny- this, is <laughs> okay. a Daniel Day- this is there will be blood performance levels of Danny Green right now, because holy smokes. It's not the guy I watch for 82 <laughs> games. I'll tell you that much. <sighs> That's probably, I'm going to use that as the lead-in for the, uh, <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> This is a there will be blood performance from Danny Green. <laughs> but, it's, like, it's the, and now it's seeping into this confidence. I, I was doing the game rewatch this morning, right before we hopped on here, and you can see the hesitation on some of his shots. Uh, I think it was when Larry, they, uh, Larry dished it to him in the corner, and he has this ever so slight hitch before he shoots. And it's like he, he's thinking just that extra half second, which is, delaying what is usually one of the smoothest releases in the league and I, look I'm not the shot doctor here but that's not that's not something Danny Green did the whole regular season was even think twice before pulling the trigger so but alas he also hit one of the biggest shots in overtime so all is redeemed I suppose hey nah <laughs> <laughs> I like I love Danny Green. I think he's very conscientious. He he's he's a great ambassador for the game and I believe in his ability to to hit shots. How it's been so far though, like I don't blame him for anything. He's just missing shots. However, am I frustrated and wish he was hitting more? 
Yeah, so he's got to hit more than one for me to be like, all right, Danny, you're good to go. Because the Raptors, I guess, objectively, by the numbers, were far better with Norm in the lineup last night as opposed to Danny, which is worth saying. And just to go back to your, you were asking for the numbers, Malcolm Brogdon shooting from downtown on seven attempts per game in this series. He's shooting 45% from downtown. Oh, which so he is making every single one. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing, right? Is like, hmm, who do we know on the Raptors who over an 82-game size sample hit 45% from downtown? Who might that be? Oh, yeah, Danny Green. Hoopst, I ask you. Daniel Day-Lewis himself. Yeah, there will be blood. It's, ugh. That, it's frustrating because, like I said, I did all the pleasantries for Danny Green. He is He's that guy, and he has been that guy. And there's a reason why the Raptors were dunking on Raptors fans, I should say, were dunking on the trade all year. Like, oh, Danny Green was a throw-in. Like, Danny Green was a throw-in. Like, there's a reason we were so ecstatic about it. And there's a reason why the league was like, oh, man, like the Spurs made a mistake trading this guy. But if he's going to come in and just fling dung at the rim, like, I just, I don't get it, man. I know. I I am going to stand up for him and I, don't know who was running the Raptors Republic Twitter yesterday because I did not subscribe to the fact that he played terrible defense yesterday. I don't I know who that was. Yeah. I actually thought he was better than he has been the rest of the series because the rest of the series, what's been the most disheartening, and in the Philly series too, is the colder he gets, it's having a negative effect on his defense. He couldn't contain Jimmy Butler, which is, is a tough ask. Jimmy Butler was incredible, but in those sorry game two and i made an angry threat about it but danny green's defense he missed an offense he failed to box out meritich on an offensive rebound he half-heartedly came towards Giannis and left meritich open for a three and i think that is because he's not he's not switched on a defensive end because it's taxing him mentally with all of these missed threes and it's been bad in a lot of the games a lot of the series but i actually thought he was okay defensively i made some pretty game-changing plays on that end of the floor. But yeah. that does not that does not offset being an absolute zero, not even just a zero, a negative at this point on the offensive end. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And it's it's worth saying that he is rarely ever a bad player defensively. And I don't know who was running the Raptors Republic account. I never tweet from there except to do like the the podcast stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know who it was last night, but I didn't agree with that either. I think Danny genuine, like, is generally a very good defensive player. So with this being said, and I don't want to steal your thunder here as the host guiding the, guiding the ship here, but <laughs> wh- what do you think about Norman Powell's performance? And does this signal that there should be a shift with the starting unit? Or is that just fan fiction and too small of a sample size? It's. I happen to be the guy who wrote the feature about uh, Norman Powell that came out today. Oh, that yeah. was me. I'm a really big fan of Norman Powell when he gets to be a tertiary option and attack moving defenses when he doesn't have to dissect anyone, when he doesn't have to manipulate the defense, when he gets to go from A to B. He's very athletically gifted. He can finish at the rim. His shooting mechanics are fine. He can hit spot-up jumpers. And he's a man of action, let's say. Whereas a lot of the people on the Raptors, a lot of the players, are men of thinking and then action. There's pilots. He is a pilot. A lot of the Raptors are passengers. Sure. That's uh, what you watch Survivor. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Anyway, anyway, um, yeah. When he gets to just, when it's clear that the lane is there or if the jumper's there, He's going to do it. He's going to go after it. And there's a lot of utility, especially in this series against the Bucks. the same way there was in 2017 against the Bucks. There's a lot of utility in Norm Powell being in the lineup to be somebody who, let's say, is a pilot, going to drive to that rim, going to fly up there. However, comma, I think that the Raptors have to beat the Bucks not with a higher floor, but they have to. If they are going to beat the Bucks, they have to beat them with their ceiling. Danny Green, Danny Green, Danny Green represents the Raptors' ceiling. 
And the Bucks are a historically good regular season team. They have been very good in the playoffs. And if the Raptors want to actually win a seven-game series, which is significantly more than a game three at home, they have to have Danny Green in the starting lineup for me. And they have to play at their ceiling, not at a slightly higher floor with Norm Powell if they want to win. I think they could be more competitive maybe in games that they lose if they take out Danny Green every once in a while if he's slumping. But I think that you have to stick it out with Danny Green because, like we were saying, Malcolm Brogdon strikes fear into our hearts because he's shooting 45% from downtown on a heavy dose of triples. And Danny Green has the exact same type of potential, and even more so because Malcolm Brogdon wasn't in the three-point competition. Malcolm Brogdon didn't have the record for three-pointers made in the NBA Finals. Malcolm Brogdon hasn't been to the NBA Finals shooting heat from downtown so, yeah, you, you got to stick it out with Danny. That's my take. I, I agree with you. And just for the simple point is that if you yank Danny Green from the starting lineup and, what, you're going to play him off the bench now, you, there's still, like, there's no bodies left for Nick Nurse at this point. Like, regardless if he's starting or not, you get, Danny Green's going to have to play 25 minutes minimum just by sheer fact that there's no one else to play for Nick Nurse at this point. And... I, I, I've, I've always been curious, and when this whole um, debate and rumors were circling about a change in the starting lineup before this game is, I never really see the value in a, like, a starting lineup is so superficial to me. At this point, it really matters who they finish with. In the Philly game seven, sure, Danny Green was the one that started, but who finished that game? It was Serge Ibaka, and that's really what was the most decisive um, line. Oh, sorry, this, it, that was the lineup that was decided if the Raptors were going to advance or not. So really it's kind of cosmetic for me. And that doesn't mean that Danny Green um, is not going to be important because he is, like you said, he's going to bring the Raptors to a newer height that we haven't seen yet. But it also means that, you know what? I think Green's aware of how bad he's struggling. If he's missed, if he's 0 for 3 in the first four minutes, bring Norman Powell in five minutes in. I'm, I don't see why that wouldn't be an issue. And Norm played 30 minutes. Granted, it was double overtime. But I would hazard a guess that Nick Nurse is going to play a lot more Norm minutes. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he has to start. And this is something that I think people got lost in the shuffle. And we kind of talked about the start. Sorry, this is kind of turning into a gasol Baca thing. But Norm and Gasol play very well together as well. And I think... That if we're going to, I think we need to start bringing in uh, Norman Powell and Ibaka a little bit earlier. And then we can play Gasol and Powell with um, Fred Van Vliet on the bench so that Van Vliet can be off ball and we can allow um, Gasol to be a playmaker and a decision maker and a ball handler, instigator of the offense, which is something that is completely still dying with Fred VanVleet in the game, at least early on. You're hearkening back to when Gasol was coming off the bench and Norman Powell, Patrick Pekaw, VanVleet were running around and he was finding all of them. They were beating guys off the punch, that type of thing, hey? They had great chemistry, and I know we're going to get into Gasol later, but there was a Norman Powell-Gasol pick-and-roll work. Um, Off-ball off cutting, uh, Gasol found him on a bounce pass for a layup. There's some chemistry there, and I think... I. No, this is kind of, we've kind of veered off on a tangent here, but there was a couple issues that I did have with the Raptors, and it's very, very small, but at this point, the margins are so small, and it's those lineups that they are running at the end of the first and the start of the second. Uh, they ran, it was Kawhi, Danny Green, and the bench trio to start the second, and to end the first as well, it was Pascal, Danny, and the bench trio. And they went minus three in two minutes. And that could be the difference maker at this point. And they need to find a way to sprinkle in the bench guys rather than coming in as a chunk, which we've all talked about a lot. But that needs to happen at some point because that's what Milwaukee does. And when they brought Brogdon in, he was a plus five in the first quarter. Whereas when the Raptors are bringing in their trio, they're going minus three in two minutes. So there needs to be some way to sprinkle in the bench players without them coming in as a chunk unit and also making them as effective as they can be or totally. limiting 
their ineffectiveness, which is Fred VanVleet as the on-ball in, uh, initiator of the offense. Yeah, I completely agree. And maybe to tie this in a nice little bow, it's worth mentioning that, you know, Danny Green, the San Antonio Spurs fans were complaining about him for a large part of last year because of his inability to be effective as a creator and that he wasn't as good on a Spurs team that didn't feature a superstar to play off of. He wasn't he wasn't finding free space in the offense when it was DeJounte Murray, Rudy Gay, guys like that. He needs a Kawhi Leonard, a Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, someone stirring up the defense, and he needs to find the open space. Mm-hmm. And that's why he has a lot more, I guess, inherent value next to the Raptors starters who create a lot of space, who create good shots, things of that nature. And to tie that into Fred Van Vliet, we don't think of Fred Van Vliet as a Danny Green type of player, but we should be. I think that is the number one problem with how Fred Van Vliet is being utilized by Nick Nurse. Fred Van Vliet is not Kyle Lowry. He is not the heir apparent. He is a smaller version of Danny Green. Fred Van Vliet is one of the best three-point shooters on the Raptors. He's a very tenacious defender going around screens. He'll get up in a guy, but that's his value. And he needs to play off ball the same way that Danny Green needs to play off ball. There's a reason we keep running into Fred Van Vliet gets the pick and roll possession, gets the switch, can't shoot over the guy, can't beat him to the glass, and he dribbles it out. They reset the offense, and you just lose 8 to 10 seconds. Suddenly you're panicking. You're getting bad shots. It's snowballing. Those two things... There's just such a strong connection between using Danny Green correctly, knowing his worth, and completely misidentifying Fred Van Vliet's role on offense that it does vex me that there hasn't been a connection made there by Nick Nurse. So we'll get into the next thing, which ideally should be your favorite thing. We briefly danced around Gasol, but uh, I'm just going to hand it over to you, man. He had a great game, game three. After game two, he had lamented his own play he had said that he helped set a bad tone for the game which is which is fair he did miss those shots early and it wasn't a good game for him but game three was a really strong performance and you know I know you love the guy so go ahead the floor is yours mate do I love him do I love Marcus man that game three that opening quarter of game three was one of the happiest viewing experiences of my life it genuinely was. Because here's the thing. I Like you mentioned at the start, sometimes I've tried to curb this somewhat, but I am still an impulsive guy, and there's still that fan in me, and I'm trying to wean myself off of that as we become more objective writers in this, in this industry we're trying to make it in here, Samson. But at the same time, man, you knew how painful it was for me to give him a D grade when I did the quick reaction on game two. And I've tried to make a lot of excuses for Gasol in some of these situations, and I defend him to the hill and back, but he played terribly in game two. He played terribly in game one, and it looked like he was lost. It looked like the modern NBA had finally passed him by. But game three, I was a prisoner in the moment, but game three, I was right back on that wagon, and I'll never leave that wagon again after what he did in that game. The thing is, when that first three went up, you it felt like the place was silent. You, the tension, as soon as it went in, the tension just left the arena. And it also left Gasol, I think. And as soon as that three went down, then another one went down. And the rest of his game began to open up. And that was what made me so happy. is Because then we started to see the things that makes Gasol really great. What has made him a defensive player of the year. What made him one of the greatest big uh, passing big men of all time? And, oh, man, I, I don't even know. Some of those, when he blocked the three-point, I think that's going to go overlooked amid all that crazy <laughs> first quarter. He blocked a damned – the guy can't even jump over a phone book, and he's blocking one of the best three-point shooters in the league. What is going on here? He's, he stole the ball twice from Giannis in transition. I don't know what's happening. In my life right now, but I've been I've got some good karma worked up or something because that was an absolute pleasure to watch Marcus Gasol yesterday. 
And so I guess just to maybe improve my writing and improve my takes on Gasol a bit, I'll sharpen the sword, sharpen my mind against your takes on Gasol. I'll read you what I wrote about Gasol after game one, and you tell me if I got it wrong or if I was correctly predicting his his route for success. So <clears throat> Marc Gasol's defense in the paint, specifically when Antetokounmpo marched in there, was inspired. However, comma, the days of him eviscerating teams as a conduit for the Raptors' five-out offense have come and gone. He's been identified as the weak link in the Raptors' proverbial chain on offense, and defenses are playing him as if he can't hurt them. If he doesn't stop passing up his great opportunities for teammates to get decent opportunities, he'll continue to hurt the flow of the Raptors' offense, and the already massive amount of attention on Siakam and Leonard's shoulders will continue to mount. Gasol is a good shooter, and it's up to him because he's open, to step forward with a mind frame that allows him to take his shots in rhythm. His hyper-awareness that was previously shredding defenses by finding the open man has been a hindrance of late because he is the open man. When Gasol surveys the court, he's only giving the Bucks what they want. Shoot it. What do you think, man? That's, that's some poetic stuff right there. I, I honestly cannot, I cannot object to anything you said in that situation. What I would say, though, and I think it's something, as someone that has followed Gasol through his career and now seen him in this newfound role in Toronto, and the whole thing was when he got traded to the Raptors, it was, we've got a space in big man. We've got a guy that's going to stretch the floor. That's not wrong. But that's also, as good as he is as a shooter, it's never been his game. And it's actually a really recent part of his game when D David Fisdale came as a coach and said, you better damn shoot threes. What Gasol, Gasol treats it, you can see it's like a, it's a whole performance for him. He likes to find his feet. When he was in Memphis, Memphis and he was the number one guy, he, he liked to sit in the post, survey, find the cutters. He'd like to sit in the elbow, look at maybe some dribble handoffs with Conley, look at some more actions and just look to get other people involved. That's how he kind of found his feet in each game. The world centered around Marc Gasol. Now he's in this different role in Toronto. And I think it would be damn hard to be in his position and adjust. Because now, as, uh, as a lot of people say when you're uh, a teammate of LeBron's, you sit without the ball for 18 seconds and then you better hit that three when you're open when he dishes to you. And that's never been his game. He's the one that finds looks for people. He would have his post-ups. He would maybe get some short roll opportunities off of Conley pick and rolls. But now it's like, this is how you're going to get involved in the game is in the opening three minutes, you're going to get three wide open threes, even though you are a reluctant shooter at times. And I can see the pressure that's on his shoulders with those shots. And so thank God he hit them. But you're right, though. At this point, in his, the way he fits into this team and the way that he can best contribute to this team, he's going to have to hit those shots. And really, I think it's just an adjustment for him. Yeah, I agree completely. And hopefully he's got the roadmap going forward. As for you guys, all the listeners, you're about to listen to an ad. And uh, Adam and myself will be back shortly. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. Welcome back to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. Still Samson Folk hosting. Still Adam McQueen as guest. And we're about to get to the Raptors Twitter questions. We sent out a tweet. You guys responded, and uh, we'll respond in kind to those. Kawhi for Prez at All Watcha. What do you think of Nurse so far in this series? Adam, I'll let you take that one off start. I, I mean, I've been pretty happy with him. It's always going to be opportunities to nitpick, and I think it's similar to the Philly series we talked about is uh, when you have so many limited options in terms of individual production that you've got to be creative with your lineups. But like we mentioned earlier in this podcast, I was a huge fan of the defensive adjustments that he made, and I also was a fan of um, 
Although in the latter stages of the game, as is the case, it's Kawhi or nothing. But I thought that they ran their the way they ran their offense in the first quarter in the first half. They really got other guys involved and didn't lean on Kawhi for the whole. Well, ended up being six quarters of action, and that's what really impressed me from um, the, the the way that they approached the game, which obviously is how Nurse decided that they were going to attack the Bucks. So. Yeah, I've I've been impressed. It was um it was a gut check moment in game three to really pull out some stops to get back. Now it's game four. That 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 adrenaline, that backs against the wall um energy they came with, it's it might be gone at this point. So now you're really gonna have to make the adjustments necessary because I think Milwaukee are now they've got forty eight hours to prepare for the uh, the kinks you threw their way, so I think Game Four is going to be really telling. What do you think? Yeah, I think Game Four. You know, after the series starts hitting this point, the first two games of a series, provided that you know the higher seed takes them. As far as importance, they're not so big. It did hurt for the Raptors not to steal Game One, of course, but those things happen. Every game going forward suddenly becomes the most important game in the series. That's how these things work. Having the Bledsoe, Middleton, Giannis adjustment in game three was big time and it saves you you know you've got these game four game five game six game seven to try and keep flexing these adjustments to make the bucks uncomfortable and hope that these are the type of adjustments that like the raptors had to deal with with them beat on siakam that will reverberate through the rest of the series the bucks have to come up with an answer if they don't have a good answer then this is this is unbelievable genius from Nurse. This is series saving, possibly giving the Raptors an NBA Finals berth. And it was the same thing with the with the Semi Sixers series. Is just waiting, waiting, waiting. Then finally getting aggressive and flexing all the collective muscles of this Raptors roster. And I think I've genuinely and generally been happy with Nurse's response. The only constant misstep I see is like you alluded to earlier on in the podcast is the bench guys don't have to come in in chunks, A, and the misuse of Fred Van Vliet. Those are two things that have always been a little bit tough, right. but I don't know if we get past that. If we do get past that, if that's the next thing, if he completely restructures Fred's role in the offense and we see Fred coming in for two or three triples made in a playoff game and he's bouncing around the perimeter getting loose off of pin downs for shots, then Nurse will have a giant A-plus in my book. But for the most part, I've been pretty happy with Nurse's job. What? Um, speaking of adjustments, because we've always, obviously, it's a Raptors podcast. We're looking at this from a Raptors perspective. But the, the thing that Zach Lowe kept writing about in this series was kind of um, which team puts Giannis or Kawhi on the other defensively. And Obviously, that's something that Nick Nurse did in Game 3, and it was to huge success. What was it? 41 possessions, uh, 2 for 12 shooting, 2 turnovers. Either, either way, you could see that it, it, um, it affected Giannis. Now, if you're Bud, do you put Giannis on Kawhi? Because I'm not so sure that that is, um, is beneficial to the Bucks team defense, but I want to know what you think. I definitely wouldn't. I, I get that there's this idea that it's like mono mono, mm-hmm. but and this isn't me thinking that Kawhi is, you know, a much, much better player than Giannis or anything, but Giannis is specifically a lot better at helping at the rim and offensive rebounding than Kawhi is. But as far as perimeter defense, if Giannis is trying to check Kawhi for 94 feet, I think Kawhi's going to shred him, man. And I think Bud probably knows that. If he does give Kawhi the the Giannis, def- like if he goes to Giannis for the defensive assignment against Kawhi Leonard and Kawhi, who's been in running a lot of damn pick and rolls yeah. in all of these series, if suddenly Marcus Gasol is bodying up and Serge Ibaka, who looks quite pointy when he <laughs> sets screens, if those two guys are starting to hammer Giannis, you know, 20 feet away from the basket on every two out of three possessions, that's mm-hmm. that seems like a big time loss for the Bucks. And 
I, I honestly don't think that Giannis would be a better defender on Kawhi Leonard out there than Chris Middleton would. And Chris Middleton yeah. is already like close to an all NBA level defender. Man, so I've been so, so impressed with Chris Middleton defensively. I wrote about it in that in that piece before after game two about just kind of lauding Milwaukee's defense and Dude, that guy sticks to Kawhi. You can say all you want about his lack of offensive output right now, but he is sticking to Kawhi like glue. The game plan to force him left, again, I think Kawhi took one jumper on the right-hand side, and his denial, and it's something we talked about before with um, Gasol in the Philly series, how hard he made Embiid work just to get a post-up, and it takes another five, six seconds off the clock before he can even get the ball. The same thing's happening to Kawhi. They're working so hard to get the ball even in his hands that Middleton has it doesn't get sorry, it doesn't get to Leonard's hands till maybe fourteen seconds left on the clock. And that's just all credit to Middleton in that department. And yeah, I, I wanted to see what you, you thought there, but I totally agree because once you start bringing Giannis out there, you've lost your rim protection. Granted, Brooke Lopez has been great, but I think the part of the reason that Lopez is doing so well as a rim protector now is because he's got a seven-foot absolute specimen behind him. There's also a secondary help at the rim. So, yeah, I would be very surprised if they do that. I hope they do it because I think it plays into a uh, into the Raptors' hands a lot more. But yes, I I doubt that will be the case. Yeah, and you know, not to toot my own horn, this this might sound a bit weird to you, but I'm gonna go back to when I used to play. Well, I still play basketball. When I used to play competitive basketball. I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, follow me on Twitter, but there's a video of me throwing down like a nice dunk. Like I can get up there. And when I played basketball, we had a six foot seven center and we played a one three one defense. The six foot seven center was the I guess the second guy you'd meet, and I would be jumping for help side. So he would force the guy to pick up his dribble to try and get around him, and I would jump up to meet the ball in the air. That was just how we played defense. So I was the help side, I guess, air defense. He was just standing there as a six foot seven big blockade that you had to get around before I was coming in for help side defense. Giannis Antetokounmpo does the exact same thing. He's the six seven guy, and Brooke Lopez is just a much larger version of me. Brooke Lopez, if he has to defend in space, is gonna be shown as not an all world defender. However, comma. When Giannis is running around as this constant buffer to slow guys down, force the pickup so they're on their last step, and Brooke Lopez actually gets to attack as the defender. And that's the thing, right, is when you force a guy to pick up his dribble, like Giannis often does, Brooke Lopez starts to get at- to attack the ball mm-hmm. as a blocker, as a, uh, sincerely a really great shot blocker. If Giannis is out on the perimeter caught up on a screen of Marcus Saul, caught up on one of, you know, Serge Ibaka's elbows, something like that. I mean, Lopez is going to have to guard in space by himself. He doesn't get to come over as help side. He doesn't get to stay in the warm confines of the paint. He's going to have to be reactionary instead mm-hmm. of attacking. And mm-hmm. I think that the move, if they do put Giannis on Kawhi, I think that mitigates a lot of their strengths on defense. As and if team. they do, I will thank them for it, and I will say, man, the Raptors might go to the finals. I don't think the Raptors win this series as of right now. I'd love it if they did, but I think they do if Giannis starts taking that Kawhi assignment. For sure. I think there's uh, there's some tired bodies, but I think, yeah, if you can get Giannis away from that rim, because this has been so impressive to me how not only how many shots he's blocking and altering, but how many shots he's just preventing even being taken at this point. The people are second or third guessing at this point when they get into that area. Which, actually, I know we've got more Twitter questions, but I just wanted to give a quick shout-out that I think has kind of gone under the radar too, is how damn aggressive was Pascal Siakam on Giannis? He got swatted once, maybe twice, but he took it to him in the paint. He said, you know what? I'm not settling for these threes, although he did hit some later. But he went in and he was active. He didn't just kind of lumber in and have those awkward floaters that he did against Embiid. He really put the Siakam spin cycle on Giannis a couple of times. And, man, that really, really encouraged me from a Raptors perspective. 
Siakam is he is playoff proof. He is everything proof. That Siakam is tenacious, life. wonderful, and he's just the best thing ever. I said it on the podcast last night, the reaction podcast. I was like, it's so hard, even though Siakam missed those two free throws, it's so hard to get down on him because he was not supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. He's been guarded by Joel Embiid, a defensive player of the year nominee, and then Giannis Antetokounmpo, who will more than likely be an all-NBA defender, or he'll be represented on the all-NBA defense team is what I mean. And if not, he'll be on the fringes anyway. Those are the two guys who are ding up Pascal Siakam. They're not picking up Kawhi Leonard. Siakam, the guy who was averaging less than 10 points last year, the guy who started playing basketball seven years prior to a few weeks ago, he's suddenly being guarded by the best in the NBA, and he has the, the gumption to go in there and go for 25 points, to completely outfox Giannis sometimes, to outbody him sometimes. And there's just so much good that he does. And then, like you said, getting into Giannis, not only on offense, but when the switch came, he got into him on defense, and he oh, did yeah. a great job as well. I've, I've been more than impressed for it's going on, I think, 96 games 100%. with Pascal Siakam. It's his ability to... Um... It's not going to be perfect. And like you say, he's going against two of the best defenders in the league. But his willingness to try and solve the puzzle that's ever-changing in the playoffs, right? That's that's what the playoffs are. That's what separates good teams from great teams. It's why we see such drastic uh, differences in players and teams' performances once the playoffs come. Because you can scheme. You're scheming for a player. You're scheming for a specific team. You're scheming for a specific action you know they're going to look to run. And I think... Now that Siakam has tasted this for the first time and what it feels like to have teams straight up try and disrespect you from the three-point line, man, there's there's nothing but positive things you can say about his approach, uh, the way the results have turned out, and just his his damn resiliency, man, to just keep going for this. Because I think a lot of players would uh, turn inwards, and that's not what he has done. Yeah. He's he's the inverse of that. He he turns outwards and he just keeps going. Relentless, like you said. The next question from Jeremy Lintel at Jeremy Lintel. If you had to guess, what would this question be about, Adam? Do you have do you have any idea what this question might be about? Yo, I do not have a clue. Samson, you can question, uh, you can you can ask and you can answer this question because I do not want to be berated on Twitter. Please and thank you. So the question is as follows. How about discussing Nurse's nurse's irrational decision not to play Jeremy Lin when Fred Van Vliet has struggled monumentally? To me, it has a lot to do with the implicit bias Lin continues to face in the NBA. I think that there is definitely a conversation. I, and uh, you know, I, this is a great question especially if you had a couple guys who weren't, you know, just Raptors writers who, you know, Alex Wong might be a really good guy to answer this question. He, he knows Jeremy Lin. He's spoken to him quite a few times. They've, they've spent a bit of time together. And, you know, Alex Wong also being, you know, an Asian guy who in Canada understands and also in a profession that's dominated by white males like sports writing the same way that Jeremy Lin's profession is dominated by, you know, a demographic that is not him, maybe they would understand it. For me, though, the answer on implicit bias, I think there's no doubt that Jeremy Lin faced it going into the NBA. No doubt about it. And he had to come up against a lot of things. There's a lot of disbelief in what he was able to do. There are a lot of facets of his athleticism that he wasn't credited for early on. Linsanity was an absolute, it was so much fun for everybody. And then he had a little bit of trouble later on in his career. He had the, the injury in Brooklyn that was not fun. And he, he probably would have been great in Brooklyn as Kenny Atkinson, when he signed with the Raptors, Kenny Atkinson was glowing about him. But I, I do understand why Fred Van Vliet keeps getting minutes. And it is because he is one of the top three shooters on the Raptors. Legitimately, Fred Van Vliet, he can, he can stroke it. You want to maintain the ceiling. It's like I alluded to earlier on the podcast that the Raptors don't beat the Bucks playing at a higher floor. They beat them playing at their ceiling. 
And it's the same thing if they manage to play the Warriors going forward. Jeremy Lin probably, and I don't mean this to be mean, but he probably doesn't represent the Raptors' ceiling. And based on his performance with the Raptors this year, he wasn't as sharp as the Jeremy Lin we all know and love when he's, you know, completely dicing people on the pick and roll where he has a nice in and out dribble and he's getting to the, to the reverse layup where he's, you know, taking a sidestep and hitting that elbow jumper on the right side. He wasn't able to create effectively in the pick and roll this year. For a player whose bread and butter has been that since he's been in the NBA, if he's not able to do that, he's not really able to do anything that Fred Van Vliet does. And Fred Van Vliet, at the very least, has been a decent defender most of the time. Uh-huh. The implicit bias, I, you, I'm sure there's somebody who's had that conversation. Jeremy Lin might have even had it himself. But I, I don't have the answer there. I feel like that's as good an answer I could give. I could not that, put uh, that more eloquently. That was uh, a good answer, Samson. Hat off to you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and we'll go into the next one. <clears throat> Aaron K. At Aaron K. 55. And we'll swing this one over to Adam. Why were Ibaka's minutes so limited? Not complaining. Just curious. Um, yeah, I mean, after game two, I thought maybe this is uh, more of an Ibaka th- series. But I think what we have discovered over the three games is that supersized lineup of Ibaka, Gasol, and Kawhi and Siakam, mainly just Ibaka and Gasol together, it's, uh, it's not going to have the same uh, upside as it did against Philly. So with that being said, if you can't really play them together too much simply because of the, the outside shooting of the box and really... the they just don't match up well enough to have that kind of that kind of size and lack of shooting. Really, um, that means that you play in one of the two, and Gasol just happened to have a very very good game and figured it out. And I think, from a very uh, base basic standpoint, I think that was one of the reasons that Nurse was like, you know what, they can't play together. I had the numbers on me, but. The brief time that they did play together, it was, an, I want to say, like a minus four, a minus six, and a handful of minutes. Get, and it just didn't look good. Um, I'd say that's probably one of the reasons Ibaka's not getting many minutes. And, yeah, he's, uh, his mid-range game, is, he's, he's questioned it a lot more. It's, uh, it's not the regular season pick-and-roll action or pick-and-pop action we saw with Lowry. And, man, I just you don't trust him. From deep above the break threes, I just don't trust uh, Ibaka to shoot him. And the whole the whole uh, setup of the Bucks defense is to give away above the break threes. And we've seen on a, a bunch of occasions at this point that Ibaka has that shot with acres of space, and he, like Gasol, is unwilling to take it. And unlike Gasol, he I don't expect him to hit them at a uh, a percentage which is worthwhile. If he's shooting these threes wide open, that's a win for the Bucks defense, and I think Nick Nurse has realized that. What I would say, though, is if we do want to get Ibaka more involved, he just can't be playing with Van Vliet. Like we've mentioned, there's three certainties in life. There's death, taxes, and a Fred Van Vliet, Serge Ibaka pick and roll, resulting in a terrible mid-range jumper or a turnover. If you have Ibaka with Lowry, we know that there's going to be a positive effect on Ibaka's individual play in that regard. If Ibaka gets more minutes, it needs to be with Lowry, simply put. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, Ibaka, I'm sure, will have a game in this series. The same way he he, he was not very good early on in the 76ers series. He had a couple bad games in the Magic series. But Ibaka... He is, you know, he was in the dunk contest. He has one of the few true free throw line dunks in that contest. He's an absolute monster athletically, even if he's a bit over the hill in that regard, or at least seems to be compared to when you think back to his 3.7 blocks per game with the Oklahoma City Thunder type of Ibaka. He'll find his way in this series as as he often does. But he's already he's shown his utility, and the Raptors, they went to that jumbo lineup against the Sixers, and it was great, and it was effective, and it was a good adjustment. In this series, fresh off a win, 
I'm all right with Ibaka not having that many minutes if Gasol is going to be as effective shooting from downtown as he was. Because if it is Ibaka or Gasol who's stretching the floor, I'm going to choose Gasol. Gasol is also very, very good on the strip. A lot of the Bucks players come into the paint with the ball low. Gasol is very valuable in that regard. He's very intelligent on his rotations. The communication between him and Kyle Lowry as far as um, keeping up with the back end of the defense and organizing guys on closeouts, maintaining their angles, very, very important and very, very valuable. That that doesn't mean that Ibaka is, isn't going to find his way in this series, but there's just he doesn't fit in the same way as when the 76ers jumbo lineup had to meet the Raptors jumbo lineup, and he'll find his way. But I totally agree with what Adam said. There's just not as much utility for him right now. But if he does come into play more, it's got to be with Lowry. Otherwise, he's just going to be kind of a, a nothing on offense. Samson, I don't know um, how you watch your games down in Mexico or if you have the Sportsnet feed at all. But one thing I have noticed, and I, I love, I appreciate this, is I think Leo Round still thinks we're uh, playing in 1984 right now. <laughs> His resolution to every situation is, you know... You know, Maddie, they've just got to dump it into the post, into Gasol and Ibaka. Just let the big man work a bit more. Man. I hate it. 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 Watching an Ibaka post up. Man, if the Raptors are in a close game, and, like, I love Marcus Gasol, and I love Serge Ibaka. But if I see one of them go up for a damn jump hook in a close game, I'm going to... Th- I, that's just... It can't run. That is not going to work. And, and we should have no expectations of that working. You have, you have a release valve of Kawhi Leonard, you know, Kyle Lowry, if he's shooting the ball well, even Norman Powell. Just, you don't have to do that. And you bring it up Leo Routens, man. <laughs> Listen... Leo Routens, he's very good at, you know, being tan and <laughs> handsome. And, and he's obviously much better at basketball than you or I have ever been. And he was the highest drafted Canadian for a time. Like, yes, good on you, mate. Very well done. But get out of here. I don't want to <laughs> hear it. I don't want to hear it, Leo, okay? We don't need Serge Ibaka posting up. Please. <laughs> I'm very happy when Serge Ibaka is aggressive and gets on the glass, but my God, if I see him, if I see him post up Brook Lopez, even Nikola Mirotic, I'm I'm gonna lose it. And so you incentivize him, that. baby. Yeah, he's in his bag. Like I, I honestly, I was happier to see Serge Ibaka in the corner jab stepping Ben Simmons before pulling up from three than I would be to see a jump hook from him. Hey, he had That's another where one the NBA the, is. He had another one at the halftime buzzer over an outstretched, outstretched Giannis. Corner three, dagger. He's a killer. He's a killer. Give him Danny Green's minutes. <laughs> um, the, last, the last question, which I won't be able to answer very well, but just want to cover. Timo... Venyon Pa. Let's say Timo Venyon Pa. I don't know if you have time to find out the answer for this week's podcast, but we'd love to know how McKechnie and McCullough get the team physically ready for each game. What treatments do they use to help guys recover in such a short time? Well, I have no idea, but actually, just because of this, I will try to get one of them on during the summer, if I can. And that's that's for you, Timo. Adam, I think... I think we finished the podcast. I think that's that's enough Raptors talk. We've had a lot of Raptors talk here, buddy. I want to give one quick shout-out. Uh, not a shout-out. This is going to be a spoiler alert. One of my friends posted in a question. I think it was directed to me on this pod. Uh, spoiler alert on Game of Thrones. He said, if Tyrion managed to figure out all of Westeros, uh, their, their electoral system in eight minutes, does this mean that Malcolm Miller will be coaching the Raptors for game four. And on that note, I know we talked about it before, but was that not the most disappointing finale <laughs> you've ever seen? Um, having read the books, 
it's foreshadowing does not equal character development. I'll say that. Um, Jamie's one of my favorite characters ever. I was very, very disappointed with his ending. I think that the people who are most intelligent in the books, as soon as George R. R. Martin stopped giving the show things to copy off of, the intelligent characters got significantly less intelligent. And I think that there are just a lot of problems. Breaking Bad is probably the greatest show ever. Seasons one through four, seasons one through four of Game of Thrones are all time, and Westworld season one is all time as well. But yeah, Game of Thrones, you know, it did its thing. We'll see how the prequels look. But David Benioff and DB Weiss spinoff podcast on TV shows and our favorite method actors coming to you soon. Yeah, there, we'll have all the references to Daniel Day-Lewis, things of that nature. We're going we're gonna to call it There Will Be Ball. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, tell everybody where to follow you, Adam. Uh, follow me on the Twitter sphere, Adam underscore McQueen, I believe. And follow me on Raptors Republic. I will be writing stuff for as long as they're in the playoffs and probably a lot of offseason stuff as well. All right. Um, as you guys can tell, I sincerely and genuinely enjoy recording with Adam. There's a reason he comes on so often. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here, man. All right. And uh, addressing you, the listener now, whether you're listening to this at night, during the day, stay blessed and just enjoy your life. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Woo! Holy, that one went deep. Support for this episode is brought to you by Mrs. Myers. A delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything we make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived ingredients, our cleaning products work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. So bring a little bit of the outside inside your four walls and bask in the wonder of a garden from the comfort of home. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness. Shop now at MrsMyers.com. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.